You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. I am so excited for this conversation today. I will be speaking with Professor Irvin Yalom, who is a world-renowned American existential psychiatrist, emeritus professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, author of Existential Psychotherapy, When Nisha Wept, Love's Executioner, and now A Matter of Death and Life, Love, Loss, and What Matters in the End. Irvin, welcome to the show. Good to be here. I read through your book. It just came out. The book is by Hugh. I loved reading it. I have no secrets in admitting that this book, it made me very emotional at times. It's a heartachingly beautiful book. So I wonder if we could just sort of, um, let's just start right at the beginning what kind of made you and your wife, Marilyn, write the book together? Well, um, uh, Marilyn, Marilyn, I, first of all, let me let me say that as readers will see, I've known Marilyn really since I was just turning 15. So I've known her all my life and I'm 89 now. So this is a very, very, very long relationship. And, and uh it's unusual. Uh, my my relationship to her, you know, has gone on all these years, all my life, and uh, and I'm also a therapist who's worked a lot with bereavement and patients who have lost. So so I I felt from the beginning that the very beginning that uh, I was going to have a very difficult time in my grief, um, and uh, and certainly that's proven that's proven true. But Marilyn and I were taking a walk one day and a park right a couple blocks from our house and and she said to me you know i i think that you and i should write this book together about about my illness and i said to her oh that's that sounds like a uh, it's a very good idea to write a book about this now i want you to go ahead and do it I, i'm working on this other book as you know uh but marilyn who was uh, pretty uh, insistent on at times, say, no, 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 you're not going to write that book. You're going to write this book. Uh, so I, I turned away from my uh, my other book. I was going to do. I was working on a book of stories, and um, and so we decided that we would work on on a book about her illness and what she was facing. She had a cancer. Uh, that sometimes people can live with for a great many years. It's called multiple myeloma. It's a cancer of, of, of some of the blood cells, um, um, uh, but it's it's uh, it's often fatal. Uh, and um, so I, I agreed that uh, I would work on this with her, and we would write alternating chapters. And so we did. Uh, each she wrote a chapter. I wrote a chapter from my standpoint of what's going on with my feelings towards her and how how we're doing. And then after she died, um, I I decided to to write the second half of the book by myself. And and that part of the book has to do with looking at at me and my grief and how I dealt it. So the name of the book is a, a you know is 
a, a matter of death and life, her death and my life afterwards. Um, so it's a book about her dying and it's a book about what, what grief has been like for me. How would you best describe Marilyn and your relationship to her? Um, Marilyn was, uh, let me tell you, let me tell you a story about our growing up and what it was like. Um, uh, I've told this story to lots and lots of the patients that I see on consultation, so maybe I can't use it after I've spoken it to you. But the, the, sto the story is that my father came from Russia, my father and mother, to a little tiny village there. It's called the Shtetl, uh, which is a Jewish village. And they came over to, to this country. My father opened up a little grocery and liquor store on First Street, first in S Street in Washington. And it was in the middle of a very rugged neighborhood, uh, lots of crime. Uh, it was Washington, it was a black part of Washington, D.C. Washington was segregated then, where the blacks lived and where the whites lived. So it was right in the middle of a black section of town. The only white people there were often the shopkeepers uh, they kept. So I, I, he bought it, got an apartment right over the store so my mother could come down to help him when it was busy. And I grew up there till I was about 14. It was, it was a very rough youth for me because uh, the only friends I had were black friends. My parents wouldn't let me bring them into the house or go to their house. So I, I spent a lot of time in the library reading at that point. And um, it, it, was, it was really qu quite, a, quite a rugged growing up. Her father, by sheer chance, opened up, came from Russia, another village, they didn't know each other, and, and her, his father, her father's store was on 2nd Street in S, one block away. Uh, Marilyn never went to that store because her father bought a house in a nicer part of town where he thought it would be good for that family to grow up. He had three daughters. So I passed her father's store without, of course, knowing him, maybe a thousand times on my way to school every day. So Marilyn grew up in this very nice neighborhood, lots of... Uh, lots of dancing lessons and singing lessons and elocution lessons and French lessons. She had a wonderful, safe childhood. And and as I knew her in the rest of her life, Marilyn didn't even know what anxiety was. Uh, whereas I had anxiety many times and saw lots of therapists. I'm seeing a therapist now to help me with my grief, but Marilyn never needed anything. She had such uh, extraordinary social skills and knew how to be with other people. Uh, almost, she never had an enemy, uh, whereas I, I was very different. Uh, so I tell that story often just to remind people if they have a difficult early childhood, there's lots of evidence that there, there will be anxiety and discomfort later on. And don't, don't uh, deprive yourself of getting to, into therapy sometimes many times as you get older. So that, that's the difference between Marilyn, very socially skilled. Uh, always the president of her class and valedictorian, and uh, everyone loved Marilyn, me most of all. That's, that's amazing. How did you know that Marilyn was the person that you wanted to be with, that you wanted to marry? Well, I, I tell the story. Oh, I'm not sure if it's in this book or the memoir, but uh, when I first met Marilyn, I was we're going with some disreputable friends. I was going to bowling alley and uh, often gambling on the games there. And one of them said, you know, there's a, after we finish, there's a, there's a, 
party at Marilyn Koenig's house down the street. So it was a few blocks away. I walked with him. I, I never went to parties. I was so socially frightened of people. Uh, but he said, Let, let's go in. And then, but there were so many kids outside the house who couldn't get in. The stairs were all blocked. And my friend said, well, let's crawl in through the window. <laughs> so we did. And I saw Marilyn speaking to people. I didn't know who she was, but I went up to her, but I was very attracted to her. And uh, she was very tiny. She's hardly five foot tall and weighed about 95 pounds, always like that, even into old age. But I went up to her and didn't know what to say. So I just said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Irv Yellum. I just crawled in through your, <laughs> through your window. <laughs> but she was very, she was very nice to me. And we talked for a while there and, and, uh, I, I called her after that for a date, my first date in in my life. So we 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 went out, and uh, she told me that she had uh, skipped school that day. Uh, that was strange, and I, so the reason was that she had stayed up all night reading the rest of the book *Gone with the Wind*, which is quite a long book, and so she couldn't. She was too tired to go to sleep that day. So that that. One won me over because I was a man of books. I spent all my time in the library growing up. So that we had in common and always, always had that in common. So that's that's when we met that 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 date. And then that first the first date afterwards, when I heard that she had skipped school and uh, I was totally uh, devoted to her after that. And if you look back through, say, the entirety of your marriage, how would you sort of best overall, you know, give a sort of summary of the the ups, the downs, the highs, the lows? Like, like when you look back, how would you sort of best describe the relationship? Well, the um, the the relationship was was always there was always an intellectual aspect to it she was always she got a phd in french and comparative literature so she always taught at a college and i always taught too once i finished my training so we had this academic background background together so uh it was it was something that was always in inviolate to her there was a time i i got a, a rockefeller foundation grant for for writers uh and they we went to a place in bellagio italy and they we had a nice apartment they gave there were about 15 writers who had gotten the award for it's a was a month or two i've forgotten whether how long it was um but they, they gave the writers uh, a, a little office where they could write also um and then we had our own apartment uh but marilyn started talking to me at that point about some work she was doing with a uh, uh, French women who had observed the French Revolution and what they had written about it. And she talked about that. And I said to her, you know, that sounds like an interesting, you know, story. Maybe there's a book in here for you. And she, she began thinking, she had not written a book at that point. She began thinking about that. And I said, let's, let's ask the people at Rockefeller whether you could get an office too. And they, I went to the office and uh, they said, no, 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 we, offices aren't for, for, spouses are just for the people who've gotten the awards but the head of the institute had me there coming by just then he said wait a minute there is an open office and 
it was a tree house in the woods, so just about 10 minute walk, because it was right by the end of a wood in, in Bellagio. And so we, she climbed up these, this little ladder and it was a beautiful office. So she began to write her book then. That was her first book, uh, French Observers of the French Revolution. And um, after that, uh, she sort of matched me book for book. I think I'd say she probably wrote every book. Every time I was writing a book, she was writing a book after that. And her whole marriage was around that. And she was always my first and best reader. And I always, always her first reader as well. So that was so much of our, of our marriage together. Uh, it, it was, and we had, we had four children and, um, and somehow we stayed together and loved each other always. I would love to know you know i mean your 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 marriage it, it lasted a, a very long time it was clearly one of depth how, what why do you think your marriage lasted so long what, what was the secrets to sort of a good relationship what 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 how did that last so long oh it's a hard question well we did we, sh we shared this we've shared our academic interests uh we shared our friends we were always both teaching at some university or others the i think the only time there was a bit of a strain was when when marilyn was was teaching she was a professor at a nearby university but someone at stanford you know sort of invited her to come over and and be a head of a of a woman, woman center that they were there so she had a lot of feminist interests too and so when she did that she began so much so completely lost in this whole movement uh, i began to say to her you know uh, uh you're, you're leaving me out and that was the only strain that our that our time that in our time that our time came but that was perhaps the only crisis that we had. And after that, uh, she, she was, she had extraordinary social skills, had, was loved by everyone. And it was very close. It's very hard for me to talk about this without being near tears. I'm sorry uh, about that because somehow, even though it's been well over a year, I still am in, in deep grief as I knew I would be. Uh, I've worked a, a great deal in my professional work with bereaved people and I, I know the time scales and it's always been a year or two and i i had a feeling from the very beginning with the the depth and the length of our relationship that it was not going to be easy for me and so it hasn't absolutely i i completely understand if we sort of shift gears a lot and i really do appreciate you you know sharing this for some obviously for some context into the book your book is obviously the journey that you and your wife go through at the end one thing that i was really struck by was that in the book marilyn you know she got to the end and it seemed as if she just really did not want to suffer anymore i think that there's a lot of people and i would include myself in this that to use your words i have a lot of death anxiety i'm very very afraid of death um but it seems like marilyn towards the end she was the complete opposite so why do you think that she was perhaps so open and receptive to death at the end yeah she was uh, she was quite remarkable in that way uh she was very open uh, she she went to the uh to stanford for her treatments all the time but she tried one medication after another none of them were working and eventually she had so much suffering so much pain 
that she uh, wanted to have the doctors help her help her die. Uh, so it was a physician-assisted dying, or or we could say a physician-assisted suicide, which is legal <clears throat> in some states in the United States and in some countries, like uh, for example the Netherlands. Uh, has uh, you know is very lenient about that. I don't know quite what it's like in in the UK. Um, so she uh, she tried all the treatments after a while, and then was in in such pain and in in, in such physical pain and in such misery that she uh, she talked to her physician and said that this is enough now. Uh, I really want to help have someone help to die. And in the United States, uh, we, we, she referred us to a, an institution called a hospice, which helps people with, with uh, untreatable illnesses, uh, face death. And the physician in the hospice, uh, when he realized that there was no treatment possible for her, uh, did give her medication that, that, that helped her, helped her die. And uh, it, was the, it was the good thing for her. Uh, much as I hated hated for her to die, it was it, it, I would have done exactly the same had I been in her situation. Yeah, and it's interesting because we hosted not too long ago uh, B.J. Miller, Doctor B.J. Miller. Have you heard of him? No, I haven't. No, I think he's from Stanford as well. Perhaps um, mm -hmm. he gave a great uh, TED talk. He worked in uh, palliative care, and one thing that he said when he came on the show is that he said that. Uh, for many people towards the end of their life, the death actually comes as quite a relief. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not sure, I don't know if you sort of agree with that, but I found that quite staggering. But when I really thought about it, perhaps it doesn't, that perhaps knowing that we are going to die, perhaps that brings more value to life. Uh, well, yes, that's a good way. That's a good way to look at it. Uh, and I, I think it, it is true for many people. It's, it's a great relief. It was it was for Marilyn. But there'll be a lot of other people who may not have, um, you know, a fatal illness, uh, but are frightened of uh, so much frightened of death. I've been I've been doing a lot of consultations over the last year. I'm not doing ongoing treatment. I'm getting a little old uh, for that. But I see a lot of people for a single consultation, uh, and uh, I've worked with a lot of people who have uh, great anxiety about about dying. Um, and I, I feel there's a real correlation to the uh, the kinds of regrets you have about the way you've lived your life. If you feel you haven't really done what you would have wanted to do in life, you're full of regrets for all the unlived life in you, you will be terribly frightened about dying. But if you have a sense that there are very few regrets in your life, uh, that you lived your life as fully as you could, then the death anxiety, in my experience, is, is, is far less than that. And that was, that was true with Marilyn. Uh, for sure, it was true with Marilyn, and I, it's also true for me. Uh, here at 89, I, I, I don't know how much longer I'll live, probably not a great deal longer. But I have uh, I have very, very little death reg regrets, very, very little death anxiety at this point, almost, almost none, uh, which is, 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 is quite extraordinary for me. So I feel I've, I've, I've done what I could in life. I'm satisfied with my life. I don't feel there was any much unlived life in me uh, so that uh, I can really do this. It's also a peculiar thing that's happened to me not too long ago is that sometimes I, I feel myself thinking uh, as I think of Marilyn and I think of her in the cemetery, which is only a 20 minute 
20, 25 minute walk from me, but I have never visited, by the way, that's part of my hang up with grief right now. It's too painful for me still. But as, as I, as I think, as I think about the, the end of life, it suddenly the thought occurs to me that I'll be joining Marilyn, that idea, the sentence, I'll be joining Marilyn. And, and suddenly I feel a great relief about that. Now, as I begin to look at myself and analyze that statement, I realize that it makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, you know, I've been a pretty devout atheist since since my early adolescence. So there's no way I'm joining Marilyn, but but that I still have I have relief thinking about that. And it gives me a really good insight into how how what religion offers almost all religions offer some kind of uh some sort of comfort to what happens to you uh, after after you die so i i see the importance and and the, the 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 positive things that religions all religions offer to people even to me here i am an atheist i would i i completely agree i would love to pick up on the idea of a regret-free life because one of the parts in the book which got me super emotional was early on in the book where I believe you and Marilyn are sitting outside and she said, there's nothing that I regret. I wouldn't do anything else. You know, I, 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 I've got no regrets, essentially. Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, that really, you know, it, it sort of highlighted a lesson in my mind that perhaps death is not... Um, is not a tragedy, but perhaps an unlived life could be. Is that right. fair, fair to say? Yeah. yeah, exactly. An unlived life, in a sense, is, is a tragedy. And I see so many people who've not been able to have the life they wanted to live, and I do what I can, uh, so that even in even this light stages of life, that they begin to really, uh, really understand that and perhaps live a kind of life that they would have wanted to before. Um, so, yes, that, uh, that, that's... And I find there's a striking correlation to people who are really not satisfied with what they've done, what they've done. As, as I look at my life, I, I, I don't have that feeling at all. Uh, I, I'm, I have very few regrets about the life I've lived. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I would, I would love to, if you wouldn't mind, I would love to talk just more generally about the idea of physician-assisted suicide. So, in Britain, where I am in the UK, as you said, it's not legal here. I, I believe it might be in the Netherlands. I think it may be in Switzerland, perhaps in some states in the US it is. I've worked in healthcare and I've, I've seen people towards the end of their life in great deals of pain. You know, and, and to me, I, I've often thought that it, it would be perhaps a humane um idea i appreciate that there may be some ethical complications but do you have any thoughts on physician assisted suicide uh, i i'm very grateful for the for the opportunity for people to take advantage of that it, it was it was so important for for my wife as she died she was suffering so much and and put up with it all and then really reached the time saying this this no longer makes any sense uh, i have zero pleasure right now in being alive and i'm full of pain and and i want some help with dying and 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 in, a, in the united states if if two physicians sign on to this and they sign it's got to be a if they've got to have a fatal illness and they 
physicians agree that there's no further treatment, uh, then they can help her die. And that's what she did. And she, she asked that the whole family be there, our four children and me standing right by her bedside. And uh, as I describe in the book, he, he, he took some pills uh, and, and ground them up and, uh, uh, and, then they, uh, and also having a large amount of, of morphine too. And, then, and she sucked them through a straw. So they've got, she's got to be able to administer them to herself. You can't give her an injection or something like that. You've got to be able to, legally, you've got to be able to, to suck them up to the straw. She did that. Uh, and it's a sign, it's a scene that I will never forget. The, the children and I were just surrounding her bed. Uh, and all I could do is just count the breaths she took. And I counted the breaths one by one. There were just about 15 breaths that she took. And, uh, and she died. Uh, I, I, I went to kiss her on the forehead right after that and it was already cold it was shocking to me uh, uh in fact the line in the book that's uh, that's that's that still hits me the hardest is i write down that i'll i'll never forget that icy kiss and and i really won't but it was a mercifully easy death for her uh when when there was no way for her to really remain alive uh, so that that's that's what happened a real beautiful quote which you say in the book which staggered me as a 25 year old single man is mourning is the price we pay for having the courage to love others i cannot tell you how deeply this connected with me on emotional this is one of the most beautiful lines i've ever read i think what does this quote mean to you oh yeah well, it means that if you if you really devote a life to that kind of love, you you know that at some point it's going to end. Yes, it would be beautiful, perhaps, if the two of you could go together. Uh, and th that was that would have been possible for me. I probably would have done it. Uh, so, so um, yes, I, I think that's a good quote. I've forgotten whose quote that was. <laughs> I quoted it in the book. But, uh, but anyway, I, I, I agree with that very much. Um, and I've worked, as, as I started to live without Marilyn, uh, one of the things that I began to do is I began noticing uh, the, all, all the books on my shelf that I had written that I had never really reread. So I started reading my own work, and that was so helpful to me. Um, and, um, and in fact, I began reading about, uh, there, was, there was one book I came to, a book called Mama and the Meaning of Life, but one of the stories in there had to do with eight advanced lessons in the therapy of grief. I've long since forgotten that story that I had written as I was working with a, a Stanford professor whose husband had died and also her brother had died a short time before that. And we had a hard time working. She was not only greatly sad, but also very angry that life had treated her like this. And uh, I, I did my best to help her, but she was uh, she was an angry person, and and she would say things to me like, "Oh, 
you're sitting there in that pink striped shirt and nothing bad has ever happened to you. This was before I lost Marilyn, of course. Nothing bad has ever happened. You don't know how I feel and how can you help me? And we get into arguments, you know, and I'd be yelling at her, oh, I have to be depressed to treat depressed patients. Is that what you're saying? Or I have to be schizophrenic to work with schizophrenic patients. So I was giving her a hard time uh, at her ideas that I could never really know what she was feeling. But you know, after after reading that story again and thinking about what was going on inside of me during my grief, I began thinking, you know, I think she was right. You know, I, I, I think I would do a better job now. I think I could understand what grief really feels like. There's a kind of numbness that came over me, numbness and depression. And, and all sorts of obsessional thinking came to me after after Marilyn died. So the second part of that book, in a sense, is, is kind of a examination of how, how one or how I uh, experience grief. Are there any lessons or takeaways that you've learned from grief? Hmm. Well, I, I I just I charted my way. What was happening? Uh, you know, at 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 first I I began you know thinking so much about about sadness, but I began noticing. For me, I began noticing uh, uh, having a lot of obsessional thinking. I mean, in other words, images came to my mind that I couldn't get rid of. I've worked with patients with obsessional thinking all my adult life, but but to experience it that way. Uh, this was a time when Marilyn died, there was that big student uprising in Hong Kong. Uh, so I could see that on television all the time, but I began having this image of tanks running over students. It didn't happen there, but it ran over the Tiananmen Square thing about 10, 15 years before that. So I kept seeing that strange image in my mind. It was horrible and I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of it. And then I described other obsessions that came to me. One of them, a little embarrassing, had to do with a lot of sexual imagery that, that came to me and I couldn't get it out of my mind. I didn't want it there. Um, and uh, I began being very embarrassed about it and I started reading about it and couldn't really find it in the literature. But with a lot of uh, help from my research assistants, it, it's not uncommon. Uh, for but you have to ask people about it. They don't volunteer it, but a lot of the, a lot of uh, uh, people who are in deep grief experiences after after their spouse leaves, and it, it was with me for quite some period of time. You mention in the book that the Schopenhauer cure uh, presented a great source of comfort for you. What did that book bring to you? Yeah, that's, I sort of, I'd forgotten a lot of these books. I wrote a lot of books, and this was an, this was an old novel that I had written, and it's a, it's a novel about it's a novel really about group therapy, which is a great interest of mine. I've written a group therapy textbook. It's it's, it's gone through six editions now, but it's a, uh, I, I I decided well, wouldn't it be interesting if Schopenhauer were in a therapy group? He was a very very misanthrope. Uh, never got along with anyone. Never had any really close friends. Um, it was a very difficult character to to be with. But I was thinking, what would it be like if Schopenhauer were in a therapy group? Of course, I couldn't have Schopenhauer in a therapy group, there's no such thing in, in when he was alive. But I created a character that was very much like Schopenhauer and, and put him into a group. And, uh, and I had a, a very interesting time writing, writing that book. I think 
as I, as I did it, I had alternating chapters, Schopenhauer's real life, and then the this therapy group that was uh, was going on that had a character in it so much like Schopenhauer, who did participate eventually in the group, and the group was very helpful to him, and he was on his way to to becoming trained trained as a therapist. So I I had a a, a wonderful time writing that writing that book. I've, I've written. Um, I've, four novels. One of them is about, are there, three of them are about philosophers. I wrote a uh, novel about, about Nietzsche and one about Schopenhauer and one about Spinoza. Uh, and um, uh, uh, they, these are highlights of my life. I, 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 loved, I loved writing those books. Uh, I, uh, writing has always been uh, a lifesaver for me and it has been in this, in this last year. Uh, I'm, I'm writing various stories, and uh, uh, I, I just sit down at my desk in the morning, and uh, three hours pass before I suddenly realize what time it is. And uh, so that it's been a lifesaver for me. I'm always I've always been writing ever since I've been an adolescent, and that was one of the things I imagine uh, that must have interested Marilyn in me. I was always curious why on earth she'd be this absolutely, you know. Uh, sort of having no social skills at all, didn't know how to be with people, what on earth made her interested in me? But I'm sure it was, I know that it was my interest in, in books and in reading that we shared so much. I love it, man. I love it. Um, one of the things that we think a lot about on this show is living a meaningful life. And there's sort of common denominators that, you know, that will contribute the associations to a meaningful life. One of the taglines in the book, or sorry, on the front cover is what matters in the end. So I would love to know sort of when you look back through your life, through your journey, how important in the kind of quotient of meaning has love been? How important is love? My love for Marilyn, as I mentioned, was was paramount in my life. But the idea of being of being helpful to other people, of of exhibiting love to other people, has been with me ever since. Uh, I I've been a a therapist for all my adult life. Uh, you know, I, I went to to medical school and then went to my psychiatry residency, and I've worked as a therapist ever since then. So and the and the, that idea is even stronger now than ever. What I really want to do is to be helpful to people, and right now I'm just doing single session consultations, and I I do everything I can to to offer something, uh, offer people something from that, and uh, and I I'm able to do that in a, with a great many people in part because they've read other things that I've written. Uh, they attribute great wisdom to me. So I have power in a sense if I say positive things to them. So nothing matters to me more than to be helpful right now to others. Uh, and that, that is so important uh, for, for me. Um, uh, and it's, it's what I do almost every day. I do, do try to do a consultation or uh, in some e emails from people. Uh, and, and try to be helpful to my students as, as well and to, to other therapists and, and to people who are leading groups. Yeah, and, and a wise friend um, once said to me that grief is kind of like trying to love someone, but you can't. 
it's like your body is trying to love someone but but they're no longer here to and one perhaps kind of antidote to that is sort of sharing that that grief that pain and sort of reflecting it to others taking that sort of pain and helping others as you described has that been a sort of as a sort of uh, brought you comfort in helping other people during these times mm -hmm. yeah i i i worked for i worked a whole lot with uh, I started leave, leaving uh, leading groups with with grieving people as well as people who were dying of cancer. So I was leading these difficult groups, um, but uh, I, I I find that the having doing this in a, in a therapy group where people are being very open with one another about themselves uh, that can be tremendously helpful to people. So I, I, years ago, maybe 30 years ago, I, I and a colleague started a group of, of therapists. Uh, not, not, nobody was the leader. We, we had about eight people in the group. We met quite regularly, weekly. And that was a very, very useful group throughout, throughout most of my uh, adult life. Um, and uh, I've always felt that uh, that groups and where you, you share things, you do what you can to help people is a, is a marvelous you know, therapy format to do that. So I guess I have a lot invested in that. But the idea of offering help to people is, is I'll find, I'll do anything I can in the session. People imbue me with a lot of power. And if I have a feeling uh, about this person, that there's something about them that can be really, really uh, helpful to them as a therapist, I'll certainly underscore that and say that to them. Uh, I, don't, I don't hold back on any of these positive feelings that I have. Love it, man. I love it. One um, quote that it seemed like Marilyn seemed to have on her mind a lot was this idea um, from Nisha that says, die at the right time. What do, And this quote seems to really have resonated with you too. What does this quote mean to you? Well, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's the idea of, of having, having few regrets about one's life. You know, a feeling that you've really fulfilled yourself and you're, you're pleased with the way you've lived your life. Uh, I, I do feel that way for myself right now, but I've worked with so many people who have so many regrets for what they haven't done. They realize the talents they have that they never really explored and, and used or, or, their, or their love for other people and never done that. And I, I, I never hesitate to try to use that now when I, when I work with people. So I think die at the right time is the same thing as, as, as living without regrets. Uh, and, and having pleased and being proud with the way with the way you've lived. What are some of the biggest regrets that you've noticed that people have had in their lives? I think it's the regrets of never having a, a, a been a loving person to other people, as well as never experienced never experiencing and using the own t own, the talents that you have, of knowing you've got talents to do some things, but never been willing to explore that. So uh, so it, it's looking at yourself and, and what do you regret about your life? What are the things you would have liked to have done, but have never done, or have been too timid to try that? So I will push people to really try to explore that in life. And they know that they could have done writing. They know that they could have been more helpful to other people. They know that perhaps they could have been better parents or better children. Uh, and and what's, what can we do to try and change that? 
So I, I think that's uh, something I work with a great deal in therapy. I'm so passionate about this idea. And my co-host, Lewis, and I, we often talk about this idea of playing our part. Um, we say that, you know, when our time comes, we just want to say at the end, look, that we weren't perfect. We, we made mistakes. We messed up a lot. But we played our part, you know, we wasn't on the sidelines, we gave it a good go. So I love this and I, I resonate with this so much and I completely agree. I would love to know when you look back through your life, are there any things that you wished you did less of? Well, I wish I'd done less gambling when I was a young child. <laughs> But you know, the last, the last decades, you know, I, I, I don't have that feeling. I, I, I do not have that feeling. I feel like I've done what I wanted to have done. Well, that's being a therapist, of course, because my job is really being kind and being helpful to people. I'll do anything I can in, in the interviews that I have with people to be helpful. I'll, I'll try to make a point of, of working in the here and now with people which means that I'm not only asking people about their past, but I spend every session I'll have with people, I'll try to take a look at how are the two of us relating to one another. Because I think that the relationship we have with each other can be a, a, a kind of a, a example of, of a paradigm of how they relate to other people. It's a mirror of that. So if, you know, if, I'll give you an example. I, I, one of the first one that comes is mine. I've talked about this before, I know. But I had a, 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 a MD, uh, a doctor, uh, who was single. She was a very lovely woman, very beautiful. Uh, but she, she, she came to me and wanted to talk about the fact that she always had a lot of first dates, but she never had a second date. And, and why was that? So I was always trying to explore this with her and seeing what was happening. Um, but when I tried to talk to her about, you know, as, as I will often do, can we take a look at how the session's going for you today? You know, what, how are you and I doing in this talk? What have you been feeling about me or my questions or something? I, I had the sense that she would never relate to me. I, I tried every way I can, and I've been doing this for years and years and years. I just couldn't get her to really talk about her and me and what is she feeling and this thing. And so after a while, I began to confront her with that. You know, uh, what's, what's happening between the two of us? Well, and she kept, she didn't, annoyed with me a while. Well, why are you focusing on that? Uh, you know, but, but I persisted and I'm saying, look, what's happening here between you and me is a microcosm of what's happening with you and other people. And she didn't quite understand that, but I'm saying, well, here I am, I'm trying to make contact with you, but I can't get close to you. And and I think this is probably what you do with other people, that you, you, you relate to them, you talk about things, but you'll never take a look at what's happening between between the two of you. So I, I, I make a point of trying to examine the here and now, and every single time I do that, it, it pays off. Uh, it, it, you know, that you will learn a lot uh, about examining the way people relate to you uh, in terms of how they relate to other people. Uh, I worked recently with, with a woman who, just like you and I are looking at each other, but her head was so tiny because she was sitting very far away from the screen. 
I knew immediately that this woman is going to have problems with relationships. And so I kept kind of focusing on that. Well, how come you're sitting so far away from the screen? So I made a couple of, gee, what are you talking about that? That is so silly. You know, here, well, I want to talk about things, but, but actually, my issue was the real issue for her, uh, that she's, she's frightened with people, she's frightened of being close, she's frightened of being up front. So I really tried to take her, take a look at that. It was a harrowing experience for her, but I think it was, it was very useful for her. So working in the here and now is, is always an important part of, of, of my sessions with individuals, both on Zoom and when I'm meeting them face to face. I love it, man. I love it. The book we've been discussing today, A Matter of Life and Death, Love, Loss, and What Matters in the End. I appreciate we don't have too much longer together. So I would love to just kind of ask the line by you, which really stands out to me, what matters in the end? What does matter in the end? What does matter in the end, I think, is a, is a well-lived life. I'm going to be repeating myself, but it's a it's a well-lived life where I I I can speak for myself. Uh, I have very little death anxiety at this point. Uh, I feel pleased with myself. I think that I really had that happen when I started looking at my own writing, and I said, you know, uh, I I had a bad early start in my life. The first fourteen years were 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 awful for me, but I I think I've I've overcome that. Uh, I'm proud of what I've done. Uh, I don't think I have any unused talents and abilities. Uh, I'm very concerned about the people who are close to me with, with my with my four children and I uh, do whatever I can. I'm very proud of, of them and the kind of people they've become. So that, that means a, a tremendous amount for me. Man, I, I love that answer. I love that answer. We always sign off with a couple of... Um, just quick fire questions. What books that you've read have impacted your life the most? Whoa, that's a difficult question. That is a very difficult question. Well, for one thing, I have to tell you that I, I go to sleep every single night as long as i can remember with reading something at night i'll 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 be reading a novel so i'm 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 addicted to reading so there are so many books uh that that i read and it's so hard for me to, to answer that um i love the i i love great writers um i'm uh i'm i'm just the book i've been reading recently is a book by by john banville um, the the British novelist and he's won a Man Booker Prize, so I I love writing and I love his sentences. I'll go over the sentences. How on earth has this man done that? Uh, so so I I uh, you, know, you that's a that's an impossible question for me to answer because I read I read all the time. Uh, the the novels that I've read. Well, Manville right now is the one I'm reading at this point, and I, and I, I love his work, and I love the work, the books by by Cousin Zakis, the the Greek writer, um, and uh, others will will come to me too. Um, so, so what books have been? And then um, um, my books in my field, 
you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to be a little banal here, but I, I are the books by Freud, uh, the books by an American uh, psychotherapist named Rollo May, who was a good a good friend of mine, a book by Rollo by Roger Carl Rogers, oh, who was an yeah, who's an American psychologist. These these have all been important books to me. A book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death has been a very very important book to me. So these are these are the people that I'll come back to over and over again. I have some very good ones in there. I, I recently I, I recently read Carl Rogers on Becoming Human. I thought it was superb. Yes, it was. Was, did you know Rogers at all? I did know Rogers. You did know wow. When I was in the army in Hawaii, they sent me for two years, the most wonderful two years anyone could have living on the beach in Hawaii, being in the army. But uh, I would have stayed, Marilyn and I both would have stayed in Hawaii because it was such a paradise, but there was no medical school that I could have taught at that point. Uh, so I applied to to Stanford University because it was as close to Hawaii as you could get, you know, it's in San Francisco or nearby. So I applied there and I got tickets to, to go to fly to San Francisco and a ticket to go to Illinois. Uh, so I, I, because that's where Carl Rogers was. So I was going to fly to, to Stanford and see if I could get a job there. And then I was going to go on and visit Carl Rogers and see maybe I could get a, a position in the hospital he was working at that time. But I got a very nice uh, invitation to join Stanford and I canceled my ticket, got a refund for it and did not go to Mendota State Hospital where he was. But later he moved to San Diego and I visited him a couple of times down there. He was, he was a, a lovely man, made a very important contribution to our field. Um, yeah, Carl Rogers was, I've met a lot of people in the field that were important to me. Um, so uh, I could tick them off. Rollo May would be uh, another one that was important. And he became a close, close friend of mine. Uh, when I started doing groups of patients who were dying of cancer, uh, my death anxiety started to really, really emerge. And I was feeling very anxious about this group because it was a group of women with metastatic cancer, a cancer that had spread so that every single person in that group was going to die. And one by one they did. And I would have others mention the group. And I did this group for many years, but it, it paid it. You know, I paid a price for it with a lot of anxiety. And I thought I better get myself back into therapy. And uh, this, this psychologist named Rollo May had just moved to California. He had written this wonderful book called Existence a long time be before that. He was, a, he was a psychologist, but also knew a great deal about philosophy. So I went to visit him and I saw him once a week for a couple of years. And he was very helpful to me in, in helping me with my death anxiety. But we became friends after that. That's unusual for therapists, but I knew him to the to the very end of his life. And later he he confessed to me that maybe he had helped me with my death anxiety, but it cost him a lot of anxiety too. He was 25 years older than than he was. Um, so I, I he lowered he lowered my death anxiety, raised his own. Um, and so I, I was with him when he died. His widow called me. He was very sick and it asked to see me. So, so Rolla was, uh, was another one that I, I was very close to. I love to hear and, Yeah. I'm having a name blockage, but the man who was uh, the Austrian man who, uh, who had escaped, who had lived through the camps, the, Victor the author. Frankl. 
Viktor Frankl. So this is what happens when you get old. Things <laughs> things just gate off your mind. Your memory's flaking away. But I was very close to Viktor Frankl too, because I taught in uh, the Stanford had a, a Austrian campus, so I taught for a couple of months there. And during that time, I I saw Viktor Frankl many times, and then brought him over to Stanford to lecture to our students. A very tortured man, but a man who. Uh, who had lived through the concentration camps and lost so many of the close people in his life to the Holocaust, but I made a real contribution to our field. Wow. Well, I, was, I think you're the first person I've ever met that has told me that they've, they've met Victor Frankl and Carl Rogers. You've, <laughs> you've certainly distinguished in the field. <laughs> yeah, Victor Frankl came and taught, taught, gave several lectures at Stanford. Um, and But he was a... He was a very tortured soul. The Holocaust had 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 uh, wreaked a, a, a lot of damage for him, and, and he he had the feeling that he had to do something meaningful in his life, and um, and uh, uh, he, he was a tortured person. Yeah, yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, I've got one last question for you today before we always ask you to sign off and tell these guys we didn't connect with you and about the book and whatnot. My last question for you today is hypothetical. If you could broadcast a message hypothetically to every person on the planet and everybody would, would understand it. It can be from your life. It can be from your experiences with love and loss. It can be about anything. And it's a short but impactful message that every person on the planet gets to listen to what would Irving Yalom's message it, it, it's going to come from where I am psychologically right now the message is do whatever you can to be helpful to others that's such a beautiful message that's such a beautiful message where can these guys connect with you what messages do you have for them is there anything you want to ask of my audience before they go what, whatever you want the, the, the flow is yours no, I think you're getting down into the into the crucial, uh, uh, painful things and positive things in my life. So it's 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 been a very thorough interview, and it's where I am right now. Uh, so uh, I think we've left relatively little unsaid about the really important issues in life and what I what I'm dealing with in my life. Um, so I'm going through my grief. I'm still there. I'm, enter I'm entering to my second year. Uh, it's taking a very long time. I'm getting help with the therapist. Uh, I still can't look at a picture of my wife without it being painful, but it's getting gradually better. Uh, grief will always last for at least a year and uh, often, as in my case, maybe a couple of years, but uh, I, I want to try to rejoin life again. I'm grateful for you taking the time. I'm grateful that you exist. I'm grateful that you write. This has been a real, real privilege for me to share this conversation. And thank you so, so much for sharing your thoughts and your work with, with our audience. It really means the world to me that you come on. And it's, it's been a very, very interesting hour with you. Thank you.